Today's episode of Crafting with Ursula, the ninth in the series, is brought to you by Wintertexts. Wintertexts is a shape-shifting micropress in Katai, Port Townsend, Washington. And recently they've been publishing small-run editions of essential yet overlooked works by Ursula K. Le Guin. This fall, Wintertexts will be publishing Telling is Listening, a collection of some of her best essays between 1973 and 2014. Head over to wintertexts.com for more info. Hey everybody. Like so many of the episodes of Crafting with Ursula, today's episode feels woven into, entangled with, and in conversation with many of the episodes that precede it. Today's conversation is about one of Le Guin's most iconic and influential essays, The Carrier Bag Theory of Fiction an essay that speaks to questions of labor and economy, speaks deeply to questions of gender and particularly gender in relation to received story forms and how those received forms often become tools themselves of erasure. And in its most radical moments, this essay speaks deeply to why we might want to, even need to, dethrone the hero and the hero's journey from our narratives to best tell the stories that only we can tell. Both the mono story Le Guin wants to topple and the myriad of strangely shaped new stories Le Guin wants to encourage are testaments to the power of story itself, to the imagination battle that Adrienne Marie Brown talked about in an earlier episode, that if you don't imagine yourself into the world or imagine the reshaping of the world, you will be imagined by it. But perhaps the conversation this most intimately is tied to is the last one, with Le Guin's biographer, Julie Phillips, about the writing mother, which explores in a deep way how Le Guin went about reimagining, re-envisioning her entire approach to writing, a self-expansion and self-revision that the conceiving of this essay and the writing of this essay was a large part of. Lydia Yuknovich is the perfect guest for this conversation as her latest book, Thrust, has a principal character who herself is a carrier. But I could have talked to many writers who were equally rearranged by their encounter with the carrier bag theory. Writers or anthropologists or filmmakers or performance artists. In this conversation, perhaps more than any so far in the series, is a deep exploration, among many other things, of the craft of representation in art. If you're enjoying this series, if you feel like Crafting with Ursula has been a meaningful companion for you in 2022, consider supporting the show. There are many possible rewards and benefits of doing so. There are some rare out-of-print Le Guin chapbooks. There's the book Conversations on Writing that Ursula and I did together, And there's the Le Guin Tribute Fiction Anthology, Dispatches from Anaris, which includes a story from today's guest, Lydia Yuknovich, as well as from past guest Molly Gloss, and many others from Curtis Chen, Fonda Lee, Lini Zumas. And it also includes a foreword by me, looking at the question of place and bioregion in relation to Le Guin's imagined worlds. And the art press winter texts has contributed some copies of two of their limited edition Le Guin books. 
One is her long short story, Her Knees, presented as a standalone book that was written during the same era when Le Guin is reimagining herself as a writer and which engages with, quote-unquote, keeping the house and motherhood in many of the ways I explored with Julie last month. Check it all out and more at patreon.com slash between the covers. This only touches on the possible gifts beyond knowing that you are helping support conversations you appreciate and love. I think you're going to love this one too. The ninth episode of Crafting with Ursula with Lydia Yuknovich. The connection between what I do as a writer, make, making worlds out of words, and what my wizards do, using words to kind of remake the world and change the world and cast spells, and that magic in Earthsea is word magic. I mean, obviously, to me, words do make magic in a sense. They make something new or different. What I'm after ultimately is to make something beautiful. Just like a potter making a pot or a sculptor carving a statue. Art has to do with making something that is satisfying and beautiful. I see my job as, as holding doors open or opening windows, but who comes in and out the doors? What you see out the window? How do I know? My responsibility is just to keep the mind open, not close it off. That's enough right there. Hello and welcome to Crafting with Ursula. Today's guest is writer, editor, and teacher Lydia Yuknovich. Yuknovich is the writer of the memoir, The Chronology of Water, a finalist for the Penn Center USA Award in Creative Nonfiction and winner of both the Pacific Northwest Booksellers Association Award and the Oregon Book Awards Reader's Choice Award, and which is currently being adapted to the screen by Kristen Stewart for her directorial debut. Yuknovich is also the author of the novels The Book of Joan, Dora, A Head Case, and The Small Backs of Children, for which she won both the Ken Kesey Award for Fiction and the Reader's Choice Award at the Oregon Book Awards, and for which she first appeared on Between the Covers, as well as the short story collection Verge, for which she returned to the show for the second time. In addition, Yuknovich is the author of The Misfits Manifesto, a book based on her TED Talk, a talk that has garnered over 4 million views and counting, She's also the founder of the Corporeal Writing Center and its workshop series in Portland, Oregon, where she teaches both in person and online. Other teachers at Corporeal Writing have included past Between the Covers guests, Therese Marie Myatt, Lainey Zumas, and Melissa Phoebos, among many others. Lydia Yuknovich joins us today on Crafting with Ursula to talk about Le Guin's touchstone essay, the Carrier Bag Theory of Fiction. So it is fitting that Lydia's latest novel, Thrust, has, as one of its protagonists, a girl who herself is called a carrier. Or as the jacket copy says, As rising waters, 
and an encroaching police state endanger her life and family, a girl with the gifts of a carrier travels through water and time to rescue vulnerable figures from the margins of history. Nina McLaughlin, in her ravey view for the Boston Globe, further evokes the carrier bag in her review. Quote, People use the word braided to describe books that plate different plot lines, voices, modes of storytelling. But braiding doesn't feel accurate for what Yuknovich is doing. In her work, our stories, our bodies, the two are inseparable for Yuknovich, are not braided, but bound, tied together by a thready net, joined like mycelium in a tangling spread a throb below the surface, knotted by ancestral ropes, umbilically linked forward and back. To know those binds, the torque and tug of them, is to have those fragmented parts of ourselves, our histories, our countries, our world, pieced back together. In these binds, Yuknovich shows us what's available in a beautiful paradox is the deepest kind of freedom. Ron Charles for the Washington Post adds, Lydia Yuknovich's extraordinary new novel is the weirdest, most mind-blowing book about America I've ever inhaled. Part history, part prophecy, all fever dream. Thrust offers a radical critique of the foundational ideals that conceal our persistent national crimes. Yuknovich provides nothing less than a revised past and future of America with a vast new canon of attendant mythology. I read Thrust in a state of flustered fascination and finished longing to dream it again. Welcome to Crafting with Ursula Lydia Yuknovich. It's a deep pleasure to be here with you, David. I'm I'm thrilled to do this with you. So before we talk about carrier bags, carrier protagonists, and carrier bag theories of fiction, talk to us about your first encounters as a reader with Le Guin, the writer, and then also about the ways in which Ursula, the person, has figured in your life uh, here in Oregon. I was in the back seat of my father's station wagon driving through the mountains of Washington State, hating my life and hating my father and looking at the beautiful mountains and trying to imagine myself invisible so I didn't have to feel like I was with them. And I had one book with me and it was Ursula Le Guin's Earthsea trilogy. I don't remember which one I was reading at the time, but I was about 14 maybe, or in my teens at some point. And that book turned into a portal for me that made me feel as if I left that stupid station wagon and I went into the mountains and I released myself into the world of her imagination. And so it wasn't just a readerly experience. I thought it was magic. I believed in it. And I believed that her storytelling had transported me. 
And that notion that storytelling might transport a person stayed with me forever. I mean, it got in my blood. I think you could say everything I've ever written came from that reading experience where I felt gone mm. and changed. And, and so I'll never forget that ride in the car where I left the car and the ride was something else. And later in life, of course, I never stopped reading her books. I read her science fiction slash social critique novels, which I was mesmerized by intellectually, but also emotionally, because I thought, oh, a person can tell stories and receive stories and write stories and read stories that you know, are an attempt to change the way we treat each other and the way we understand the world. And so that had a transformational impact on me in my 20s, say. And then in my 30s and 40s, I was, you know, moving away from being a student and moving toward being a writer. And I met her at a reading at the University of Oregon. And I'm positive I said nothing when it was my turn to meet her. I just shook her hand and then I kissed it like a derp because I couldn't <laughs> get my voice to do anything, which is a common condition for me under states of excitement or anxiety. And she laughed when I kissed her hand and that was my first meeting uh, of the great Ursula Le Guin. And again, that impacted me deeply. I never forgot giving her a kiss on the hand. She probably did. <laughs> it was a big deal to me. I had made some kind of contact with the magic, if that makes sense. And then much later in life, really less than a decade ago, I had occasion as a writer to cross paths with her more than once. And more than once we were seated next to each other in a recent case over a dinner. And so we got to talk to each other like people talk to each other. And I think one thing about getting older is you stop acting like an idiot because you're too tired. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's like my anxiety didn't decrease because I'm healthier. My anxiety has decreased because I don't have enough energy to sustain it. And um, so those late life meetings, um, I guess I just feel grateful that I could sit in a chair next to her and talk to her and her ideas about what writing can be and storytelling can be changed me forever Every book I've ever written has a piece of her in it because of those early experiences and understandings. Well, how would you describe or how would you begin to describe the carrier bag theory of fiction to someone who hasn't heard of it before today? Maybe just give us, you know, a, a brief intro, both what it is or what it is to you and what it means to you in your in your writing life you know on the surface it's sort of a playful deconstruction of the hero's journey or 
a certain plot line that would valorize the male hero's journey as one that is action-centered and conflict-centered and, you know, success of conquering the conflict-centered. And and there are some playful language in it with small scenarios of early mankind and what people's roles were and the difference between going off to slay a beast in a community and those who collect seeds or tend the fire or sing things or make things. And underneath that playful surface is an idea that storytelling itself has been colonized by the action hero as if that's the only story that matters and all other stories exist to support that story. And even deeper than that, one layer down again is the idea that our earliest forms of being with each other and helping each other and feeding ourselves and and making community had to do with um, collecting and carrying and um, holding and giving things to each other laterally. And she poses a question that for me became a call to action, which is something like, if storytelling in form had to change radically to raise those other kinds of bodies and activities and stories, what would it look like on the page? And this is where the essay is about narrative form. And how I took that when I first read it was, oh, she's challenging me to break down and rearrange the very form of the novel. I shall spend the rest of my life doing that. <laughs> yeah. And in some ways I have. Yeah, it's true that I th I think I can see the carrier bag in many of your books, but it's very explicitly in Thrust, your latest book. And I wanted to ask about what it means that one of the main characters in Thrust is literally a carrier, and how is this carrier connected to the carrier bag theory? There's one way in which the carrier character named Lysve in Thrust is a bit of an homage to my last discussions with Ursula or conversations and my last meeting and even that kiss on her hand. It's, it's an homage character. It's, I, I heard what you said and I love you and you paved the way. And so I'm making this character as a gift. So that's one way in which that character got born. But in addition to that, I thought about what main characters are and are not. And I, I made two kinds of decisions. One, the novel Thrust is a polyvocal novel. So there's not a main character. There are uh, groups of characters and they each get pieces or bits of story. This character, Lysve, who is called a carrier, is a figure who moves meanings around and suggests they might change. And she understands stories of people differently 
and she uh, holds those stories and then gives them to other people so that they might hold them and carry them differently. And it's these pieces of stories that rearrange and make different meanings that is a core theme to the whole book that an individual carrying pieces of story meaning and holding it and trading it with others is related to a community doing it, is related to a nation doing it, related to a world doing it. So this is the way in which the carrier theory became a central metaphor and a central plot device and a central action device away from the tradition of a central hero who has heroic actions and then transcends their own conflicts. Um, pieces of story, pieces of people being carried, literally and metaphorically. And the story moves forward less through a person and more through the objects that, the, that have been gathered. Entirely. Yeah, I love that. When you read her essay, she starts listing small items and plant material and pieces of things that are ordinarily overlooked in life. And she brings them to the surface of the essay, you know, like seeds and bones and thistles and rocks and um, blue marbles. And, and that got in me too, that small objects are sort of talismans or tokens or things we carry in life that keep us from losing our minds. <laughs> and, and so I planted them, I sort of seeded them in the story as the means by which the story would move, as you're saying, rather than focusing on big actions to move the story. Well, let's hear the opening of Le Guin's essay so we can uh, introduce her own words as we unpack what the essay is doing more. In the temperate and tropical regions where it appears that hominids evolved into human beings, the principal food of this species was vegetable. 65 to 80% of what human beings ate in those regions in Paleolithic, Neolithic, and prehistoric times was gathered only in the extreme Arctic was meat the staple food. The mammoth hunters spectacularly occupy the cave wall and the mind, but what we actually did to stay alive and fat was gather seeds, roots, sprouts, shoots, leaves, nuts, berries, fruits, and grains, adding bugs and mollusks and netting or snaring birds, fish, rats, rabbits, and other tuskless small fry to up the protein. And we didn't even work hard at it, much less hard than peasants slaving in somebody else's field after agriculture was invented, much less hard than paid workers since civilization was invented. The average prehistoric person could make a nice living in about a 15-hour work week. 15 hours a week for substance leaves a lot of time for other things. So much time that maybe the restless ones who didn't have a baby around to enliven their life or skill in making or cooking or singing or very interesting thoughts to think decided to slope off and hunt mammoths. 
The skillful hunters would come staggering back with a load of meat, a lot of ivory, and a story. It wasn't the meat that made the difference. It was the story. It's hard to tell a really gripping tale of how I wrestled a wild oat seed from its husk, and then another, and then another, and then another, and then another. And then I scratched my gnat bites, and Ool said something funny, and we went to the creek and got a drink and watched newts for a while, and then I found another patch of oats. No, it doesn't compare. It can't compare with how I thrust my spear deep into the titanic hairy flank while Oob, impaled on one huge sweeping tusk, writhed screaming and blood sprouted everywhere in crimson torrents, and Boob was crushed to jelly when the mammoth fell on him as I shot my unerring arrow straight through the eye to the brain. That story not only has action, it has a hero. Heroes are powerful. Before you know it, the men and women in the wild oat patch and their kids and the skills of makers and the thoughts of the thoughtful and the songs of the singers are all part of it, have all been pressed into service in the tale of the hero. But it isn't their story. It's his. So this is only the beginning of this essay, and already we see a hint of the ways. It is interrogating questions of narrative and story structure, as well as questions of gender and of labor and of our relation to time, which are only a few of the things that this essay engages with. Because this essay has such a huge influence, not only on writers, but on anthropologists and filmmakers and performance artists and visual artists and others. My original fantasy was to have this conversation be a cross-disciplinary polyphonic panel, especially because one way to topple the hero narrative and, and the story structure we've all inherited from the hero's journey would be to create narrative horizontally and collectively um, and without a sense of proprietary ownership. But because we're all suffering from inbox apocalypse, it quickly became clear that I wouldn't be able to get everyone together for the same time and day, but I thought we could weave other voices into our conversation together as you and I talk. So I'm going to begin with the writer Rebecca Solnit, who is inspired by Le Guin's work more generally and even referred to the Earthsea series when we were emailing as her Pentateuch but she's also particularly inspired by the carrier bag theory of fiction, which she engages with in her essay, When the Hero is the Problem. So I'm just going to read two really brief excerpts out of context from the, the essay as a whole. The first excerpt happens right after she talks about a movie that portrays a single female fictional protagonist who is an eco-saboteur in Iceland and who is portrayed as single-handedly blowing up power lines and escaping capture. And she contrasts this fictional narrative with a real act in Iceland where community members blew up a dam in the 70s, I think. And afterwards, more than 100 farmers stepped forward to take credit. And, and Solnit then says, We are not very good at telling stories about 100 people doing things or considering that the qualities that matter in saving a valley or changing the world are mostly not physical courage and violent clashes, 
but the ability to coordinate and inspire and connect with lots of other people and create stories about what could be and how we get there. And then later she says, positive social change results mostly from connecting more deeply to the people around you than rising above them, from coordinated rather than solo action. Among the virtues that matter are those traditionally considered feminine rather than masculine, more nerd than jock, listening, respect, patience, negotiation, strategic planning, storytelling. So in the, in the aura of this, um, I was hoping you could speak to um, the listeners who, who haven't encountered the term hero's journey before. You yourself have engaged with the hero's journey for a long time. But for those who don't know exactly what it is, could you tell us what the, the hero's journey is in its, in its essential nature and then how you position yourself a little bit in relationship to it? So there's a sort of Joseph Campbell framed, you know, mythos about what the hero's journey is. A lot of us, that's how we received this trope called the hero's journey um, was from his work, his books and his television programs in which he was careful to, you know, over and over again, paint for us that uh, there is a kind of story that repeats across cultures and different epochs in which a figure encounters great difficulty and there's a pattern to how they travel through that difficulty and how they emerge. There's a plot, there's a story. And the hero's journey is what emerged as the central trope or mythos of that kind of travel, of that experience in life. And it does indeed cross many cultures. It's not that there's some kind of terrible horror to this trope or this mythos. It's that it doesn't cover every existence on the planet and what story might emerge from other kinds of people who aren't considered this centrally valorized hero, which is basically all the rest of us. And so the question arises, well, what forms or patterns or shapes do all those other kinds of stories and adventures and dramas that happen to humans and non-humans, what might they look like and sound like? Uh, and aren't they multiple? Aren't they diverse in nature? Aren't they a kind of, as you mentioned, um, you know, polyphonic, polyvocal collective chorus. Uh, those are the kinds of questions that are on the other side or in the shadow of the so-called hero's journey. And blessedly, uh, many people across time have been willing to shine a flashlight in that direction and take a look. Rebecca is one of them. Yeah. Well, I want to spend a little bit more time with story structure in relation to this journey, because in a sense, the hero's journey is an inherited form and also an inherited expectation now of how stories should be told. Um, and you and Le Guin join a lineage of writers who have used various strategies to suggest these other ways to tell stories that not all stories are best told using this form. 
that some stories don't get told at all when this form is the only form. When you were on Between the Covers to talk about your story collection, Verge, which is still my favorite story collection in recent memory, by the way. Thank you. I mentioned how I felt like none of the stories in it looked like stories in the way we typically think of them, that some even felt, quote unquote, incomplete on their own, and they were completed by other stories, other, quote unquote, misshapen stories, um, Mm -hmm. that the stories felt like they were helping each other uh, story to story, almost like the 100 Icelandic farmers stepping forward to claim responsibility uh, for blowing up the dam, there was this cross-story solidarity. Um, but at the same time, each individual story was allowed to be its own strange self. Um, with your new book, Thrust, people are also noticing a similar thing. For instance, certain storylines are never resolved. Some say the m- novel moves more like a poem. Associatively, Ron Charles and his ravey view calls the form amorphous. Um, And maybe I would go further and say it is baggy, um, that it's carrier baggy. Um, But keeping story structure in our minds, but in the background, I I was hoping you could talk a little bit more. You already have, but talk a little bit more about characters and protagonists when we're also thinking of story shape. Like Lysva, the carrier in your book, isn't a main character, as you've nodded. And in some ways you could say there really isn't a protagonist, that the book is moving, the the way the book signals its movement forward isn't by following the story even of a human, um, but of objects. But could you maybe speak more to how you view character in this misshapen or newly shaped polyvocal narrative? Is there a way you could describe what a character is in that realm? Yeah, Uh, for me, and this is true in my life, as well as in my narrative experiments (laughs) or ventures, whatever we're calling them, for me, character is a collective. And it's not even a collective in a traditional definition of collective that's been used in our past. It's more like an, an organism or a collection Uh, where identity is fleeting and experience happens in passing moments or fleeting flashes. And so a story or a person can coalesce in a moment and then dissipate and move toward the person next to them's story. Uh, Because this is how I experience life, that I've never once experienced in my own existence the tradition where I (laughs) uh, encounter conflict or difficulty, I heroically slay it. And then there's a beautiful resolution and I become a healthier, wonderful person. And then there's theme music. I just like nothing in my (laughs) life works that way. Or, um, and so my, my understanding of character, particularly in the novel thrust, but also I think I've been experimenting with this idea of character from the get-go is that we come apart, a character comes apart into pieces and reconstitutes or doesn't. And when they don't, identity-wise, when their own story doesn't resolve, it just moves 
to whoever they loved or lived near or cared about, or even to some random stranger standing next to them. I mean, I bet you have too. I've had intensity of emotion and experience standing next to someone I never would know and would never see again. Yeah. Uh, it's not less real than some heroic mammoth slaying. And so trying to, you know, think of character as collecting, it is baggy. Yeah. It, it is like uh, making a holder for the pieces of people and experiences. So, so in the last episode of Crafting with Ursula, with Ursula's biographer, Julie Phillips, Julie frames Le Guin's writing with male protagonists during the most well-known part of her career as a way to keep her life as a mother and self-described Portland housewife apart from her writing life, that only when her kids were leaving home did she start to puzzle out writing as a woman. And we talk about Le Guin's crisis in 1977 when she talks to her agent, Virginia Kidd, about how she can't continue to write as a man. She needs to figure out a whole new way of writing, but she doesn't know how. And it's especially hard because she knows how to write so incredibly well the way that is familiar to her. Um, we also talk about how in the, in the introduction to the complete illustrated Earthsea omnibus that came out the year that she died, she wrote that she couldn't fully imagine an adult female protagonist until 1990, which is 13 years after this crisis. And Julie and I spend a lot of time in what I think is an amazing space between this 1977 crisis and 1990, where she's figuring it out publicly, both narratively and philosophically. And the Carrier Bag essay is one huge part of this process. It's written during this time. And part of what I love about it, and part of why I think it endures, is that it is fierce and visionary, but it's also explicitly open-ended and unknowing. And it's unknowing in a generative way that I think invites others to imagine what stories like this, stories that return energy to the hearth, that gather and put things in the bag, might look like. Um, I don't know if you have any, if that sparks any thoughts, but uh, either way, I'd love to to bring another section of of the carrier bag in Le Guin's language, and if you'll do another reading too. I will. I'll say this that you you hit on a very crucial idea from my point of view, which is the difference between an active narration that is generative at its conclusion versus some act of narrative that conquers meaning. Um, this generative principle that the entire aim of the storytelling or the essay or the poem would be to open up meaning and spread seeds and, and make a generative space is profoundly different than the traditions we inherited that are about conquering meaning or colonizing meaning or even arriving at a conclusion after a thesis. I mean, it's just a big ass deal mm. <laughs> um, to insist on that generative space. Um, it makes me excited when you talk about that. <laughs> so let's see. There I go. It sometimes seems that the story is approaching its end. 
lest there be no more telling of stories at all, some of us out here in the wild oats amid the alien corn think we'd better start telling another one, which maybe people can go on with when the old one's finished. Maybe. The trouble is, we've all let ourselves become part of the killer story, and so we may get finished along with it. Hence, it's with a certain feeling of urgency that I seek the nature, subject, words of the other story, the untold one, the life story. It's unfamiliar. It doesn't come easily, thoughtlessly to the lips as the killer story does. But still, untold was an exaggeration. People have been telling the life story for ages in all sorts of words and ways, myths of creation and transformation, trickster stories, folk tales, jokes, novels. The novel is a fundamentally unheroic kind of story. Of course, the hero has frequently taken it over, that being his imperial nature and uncontrollable impulse to take everything over and run it while making stern decrees and laws to control his uncontrollable impulse to kill it. So the hero has decreed through his mouthpieces, the lawgivers, first, that the proper shape of the narrative is that of the arrow or spear, starting here and going straight there and thuck, hitting its mark, which drops dead. Second, that the central concern of narrative, including the novel, is conflict. And third, that the story isn't any good if he isn't in it. I differ with all of this. I would go so far as to say that the natural, proper, fitting shape of the novel might be that of a sack, a bag. A book holds words. Words hold things. They bear meanings. A novel is a medicine bundle holding things in a particular powerful relation to one another and to us. One relationship among elements in the novel may well be that of conflict, but the reduction of narrative to conflict is absurd. I have read a how-to-write manual that said, a story should be seen as a battle, and it went on about strategies, attacks, victory, etc., Conflict, competition, stress, struggle, etc. within the narrative conceived as a carrier bag, belly, box, house, medicine bundle may be seen as necessary elements of a whole, which itself cannot be characterized either as conflict or as harmony, since its purpose is neither resolution nor stasis, but continuing process. Finally, it's clear that the hero does not look well in this bag. He needs a stage or a pedestal or a pinnacle. You put him in a bag and he looks like a rabbit, like a potato. That is why I like novels. Instead of heroes, they have people in them. So when I came to write science fiction novels, I came lugging this great heavy sack of stuff, my carrier bag full of wimps and klutzes and tiny grains of things smaller than a mustard seed and intricately woven nets, which when laboriously unknotted are seen to contain one blue pebble, an imperturbably functioning chronometer telling the time of another world, and a mouse's skull full of beginnings without ends, of initiations, of losses, of transformations and translations, and far more tricks than conflicts, far fewer triumphs than snares and delusions, full of spaceships that get stuck, 
missions that fail, and people who don't understand. I said it was hard to make a gripping tale of how we wrested the wild oats from their husks. I didn't say it was impossible. Whoever said writing a novel was easy. What a great sequence. Well, I have something particular I want to say and ask after this reading, but but before I do, does anything leap to mind as, as you as you read this excerpt? I just get giddy thinking about the pieces of things and stories and bodies and experiences. And I also get giddy thinking about how resolution or leaving something unresolved doesn't mean it's not a story. It just means it has different aims and energies and moves differently. That just makes me so thrilled because it's true. I wanted to take this into anthropology for a moment because Le Guin very explicitly credits her idea of the carrier bag theory of fiction within the essay itself to the anthropologist Elizabeth Fisher and her carrier bag theory of human evolution. Fisher asserts that the first cultural device wasn't a pointed weapon, but a recipient, or as Le Guin says, a leaf, a gourd, a shell, a net, a bag, a sling, a sack, a bottle, a pot, a box, a container, a holder, a recipient. But what's equally interesting is how when Le Guin's theory of narrative, which comes from an anthropological theory, has itself gone on to inspire and influence anthropologists. Uh, so I'm going to just read a couple things from a couple anthropologists. Um, one is from Anna Singh, the author of The Mushroom at the End of the World, who says, Ursula K. Le Guin argues stories of hunting and killing have allowed readers to imagine that individual heroism is the point of a story. Instead, she proposes that storytelling might pick up diverse things of meaning and value and gather them together like a forager rather than a hunter waiting for the big kill. In this kind of storytelling, stories should never end but rather lead to further stories. In the intellectual woodlands I have been trying to encourage, adventures lead to more adventures and treasures lead to further treasures. And then she goes on to describe how it has changed how she approaches her own academic writing, thinking of each chapter as a short story rather than an analytical article and keeping the chapters short even as her peers were telling her it wasn't possible for scholars to work in the short form. And she says, I wanted people to think through patches rather than a single big structure, which I love. The other anthropologist I, I want to mention is Donna Haraway. Um, she says the carrier bag theory of fiction, quote, touched me at my core when I first read it in the late 1980s and it still undoes and redoes me in the nodding of life stories for going on together in times of immense danger. It shaped my thinking about narrative and evolutionary theory and of the figure of the woman gatherer in my book, Primate Visions, Gender, Race, and Nature in the World of Modern Science. Haraway goes on to develop something she calls the bag lady practice of storytelling which she describes as, quote, a practice that hopes to remind us 
that the lurking dilemma in all of these tales is comprehensive homelessness, the lack of a common place, and the devastation of public culture. The bag lady practice of storytelling requires putting unexpected partners and irreducible details into a frayed, porous carrier bag, creating messy tales to use for retelling or reseeding possibilities for getting on now. So thinking of the bag lady, the homeless bag lady, and thinking of Le Guin's carrier bag full of wimps and klutzes and tiny grains of things smaller than a mustard seed, I also think of your notion of the misfit. Um, the, the stories that this theory of fiction generate are formally speaking misfits. They don't fit the forms we've inherited, but the people in them and the people writing them are, are also often misfits, marginal in some way. And one way to trouble form isn't just story shape, but by centering the marginal in one's stories, regardless of the shape of the story itself, and or to ask what misfit form can best tell my untold misfit story so I was hoping maybe you could talk about, in light of the the bag lady and the wimps and klutzes, if you could talk to us about misfits and anything else this notion of the bag lady practice of storytelling might might spark for you. Well, there are a couple of ways in which I wish the those quotes, particularly Donna Harway's, I wish I could tattoo it on my face. <laughs> <laughs> we I, could we could I, figure I, that I, out. <laughs> I so mightily identify with that idea and um, Ursula's stories and certainly this carrier bag essay remind us that the spotlight is where a certain kind of activity occurs, but the periphery is where everyone else exists and everything else exists. And so we've been using for some decades now this word marginalize. Um, I tend toward language like periphery or just outside of vision or the quiet space or the seemingly invisible alley or corner or liminal um, condition of being. And those are ideas that, you know, Ursula has certainly kind of lifting the layers or veils so we can see that all of existence as a collective is not in the spotlight and doesn't get the energy. And then these anthropology ideas you're reminding us of are tapping us on the shoulder to remind us there are transfers of energies that are important horizontally and collectively, as you mentioned earlier, that if we don't begin to teach more people how to recognize we're doomed, we're killing each other off um, one hero at a time <laughs> mm. so that the heroes will be the only ones left and they don't know how to gather or hold or help anything. Well, I picked out a paragraph from your book, The Misfit Manifesto, that I'd love for people to hear. And then hopefully right after your, you, you picked out a short paragraph from Thrust, so if we could hear those two together, um, maybe we can maybe we can then unpack them together. Even though it's a terrific archetype and storyline, 
Some bodies don't fit the hero's journey. Women's lives, bodies, and experience don't fit the archetypal hero's journey. Neither do the bodies, lives, and experiences of people of color. Neither Native Americans nor African Americans contract their mythos through this journey, for instance, since they were treated as the raw material through which the hero passed in order to forge a new world. Nor do the lives, bodies, and experiences of poor people, recovering or not, addicts, people who struggle with mental health issues, prisoners, war veterans, or refugees, when you can be attacked and raped because you deigned to walk outside your door for a run, when you can be shot for reaching to retrieve your book in your own car or your own home or your license from your wallet or reaching for a pack of Skittles, when your sanity or economic status is viewed through the lens of mental instability, whether you are mentally unstable or not, your body will not jam comfortably into the hero's journey. You are, more than anything, coded as a non-hero outside the hero's journey. Worse, you can be coded a villain, a witch, evil. You, you picked out a, a really brief section from Thrust also that sort of evokes the carrier aspect of Lysfa. Sure. Lysfa carried a penny in one hand and a big blue plastic letter P about the size of her head under her arm, stopping at every corner to peer around the edges of buildings looking out for trouble. In the brook on her side of the seawall, trouble could rise quickly. But a good trade was worth it. To make a good trade, a carrier needs not to care about transgressing time. A carrier needs to slip her way into the barter, to use objects and signs in unorthodox ways. Her father, Aster, often worried she was a thief, but she was not. She thought of herself as that word itself, carrier. A thousand times she had to convince her father that she did not steal objects from the on shop. Aster was convinced that losing her mother and brother had subjected her to some kind of trauma that led to problematic, erratic behaviors, stealing objects, endless list making, a tendency to focus obsessively on meaningless things. She was convinced that Aster's seizures came from the same origins, only he had yet to understand them as meaning-making spaces. To her mind, when she carried objects, she was participating in the so-called underground economies she'd read about in the dilapidated library. And it was during her reading that she came to realize how sometimes people too moved backward and forward in time, how the right people might be in the wrong time and thus need carrying like objects, like stories. So I, I want to spend a moment with time in your work and in Le Guin's. In, in the Carrier Bag essay, she, she isn't just critiquing and subverting the heroic, but also a certain mythology of modern technology that when twinned with the heroic, she calls the techno-heroic. Um, and there's a really funny part about that opening sequence in 2001 that she critiques. And the techno-heroic is a mode that, in her words, is the linear, progressive, time-arrow mode 
but she puts the word killing in parentheses after the word time, the linear progressive time killing arrow mode. But I also think Le Guin has subverted linear progress narratives from the beginning of her writing life, even in her most male hero journey protagonist mode. So let's say the Wizard of Earthsea, Ged's journey, no matter how many islands he goes to, is one of return. It's a circle. Yeah. And one not of domination, but of self-confrontation, of self-knowing, of returning to a sort of self that is beholden to other selves. And with the great Le Guinian phrase, all true voyage is return. The excerpt you chose to read from your book shows Lysva as a carrier, but also shows how a character's misfit qualities, their supposed disabilities, so in this case the this, this seizure, might also be their strengths. And lastly, it puts forth, I think, a philosophy of time when you say she came to realize how sometimes people too moved backward and forward in time, how the right people might be in the wrong time and thus need carrying, like objects, like stories. So, so talk to us a little bit about time. Bless Ursula. I mean, the more we're talking, the more I'm realizing how every novelist on the planet should just have a special Ursula room that they have to go in and learn things <laughs> from. <laughs> this story I wrote has some special rooms in it, but I think there should be an Ursula room. Um, so interestingly, we know from contemporary physics that time as an arrow model of understanding time is false. <laughs> I mean, and what's happened is it's such a comforting narrative to think that time is linear. It makes life and existence less scary. If it were only true, that time is that static and linear. Um, we would probably be less afraid uh, of what's coming because we don't know what's coming. And if time is fractured and multiple and moves back and forth, uh, that's that's quite chaotic and scary. In narrative terms, that linearity and the hero's journey are the tropes that won left the possibility of so much human experience and non-human experience not only underrepresented, but often erased or killed. So that if you experience anything differently than the linear progression of events and experiences, um, which you deal with in some heroic way or overcome all your challenges, then there's something wrong with you. Or your story doesn't deserve the airspace. Mm. Um, and that has led us to the present tense that we've created globally in which a lack of diversity of stories and experiences and the legitimate way of seeing things differently because you experience life differently has been discounted narratively to the extent that, you know, we're fumbling, if not dying. <laughs> um and so there are ways in which, you know, so many other cultures, many indigenous cultures, possibly all indigenous cultures, uh, carry a focus on the need for 
a multiplicity of stories and getting stories to interlock or braid with one another or the passing on and holding of stories as the only way to survive this is literally the opposite idea and she was on to that and she was trying to find a language to get people to listen but anytime someone like you know neil degrassi tyson starts to storytell people begin to understand physics differently when my friend Barbara J. King starts to tell the story of animals having feelings, uh, people listen to the story differently. And so it's this storytelling mode moving into other disciplines that is giving us a chance at all to relearn how to listen to each other and see each other and the planet. Well, let me ask you a question about time in, related to, in relationship to water. Because Lysva carries through time an apple, a penny, an umbilical cord, a turtle. But it makes me think of the title of your first book, The Chronology of Water, because I imagine these items ebbing and flowing on the surf of time somehow. That time, that the time of water, the chronology of water, couldn't be farther, obviously, than the than the shooting of an arrow to a target. Yeah. Um, but but is but maybe you could unpack that a little bit for us. Um, the form of water or the formlessness of water, because I think of also when you think, talk about scariness. I mean, water, the place of birth, a place you could die. Also, yeah, it's it's for me as vast as space. And space is another place where we really want to tell a story of time, but space keeps, you know, <laughs> flipping it back at us. Yeah. You know, like, all those pretty stars are dead light. Ha ha, joke's on you. Uh, water has a formlessness and a timelessness that makes you have to think about things differently. Uh, it's so fluid and it changes form so often that you start thinking more about ideas like, repetition or circularity or returns or waves or the motion and patterns of you know the sea or rivers and the traveling patterns of water and the migration patterns of water they highlight different forms um, than the arrow or linearity as as a trope or a metaphor and you can see it in writers like, say, Virginia Woolf, all that repetition and return and stream of consciousness. Mm -hmm. uh, that fluidity for me has found its strongest form in water patterns and water concepts and water metaphors. And um, I think that's a great way to help other people understand that if they loosen their grip on the arrow model of time and space just a little, there are other models all around us like water to help us understand fluidity and transfer of energy and uh, change of form and, and, you know, a kind of wave comfort. Um, and yes, that has scary space in it as well, but nothing in life is without scary space. Right. I also think in this discussion of time of Donna Haraway's notion of, of the thick present. Yeah. And she says, the task is to make kin in lines of inventive connection 
as a practice of learning to live and die well with each other in a thick present. And she elaborates on the thick present as being, quote, the temporality of the thick, fibrous, and lumpy now, which is ancient and not, a now that collects up inheritances and makes ongoing possible. I love this lumpy now, which, and the lumpy now reminds me of, I don't know if I'm going to be using the right words, but it feels like you have a notion of us being stories ourselves, but not one story, but like actual sediments of stories, which makes me think of the lumpy now, but also makes me think again of water and the laying down of, of story upon story, story yes. upon lumpy story. Yes. Yes. Um, so for me, that's found it's, it's most primal and fullest form when I'm literally a body in water. <laughs> but the other place I found it is in collaboration and collectivity with other humans making art in rooms together. And that's a kind of lumpy existence as well. It's like individual humans making their own conglomerate rock that's <laughs> sort of spit up from the shore uh, for a minute, you know, briefly. And then it transfers into some other energy. I love that quote of hers. You know, Donna Haraway was another writer when I was in graduate school. I would read her, you know, some pages from Cyborg Manifesto or something else or a book. And um, then I just lay down on the floor. And maybe that I was experiencing a lumpy present. I just had to <laughs> lay there for hours, you know, like, holy shit. What? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. No, she's incredible. Yeah. She's incredible. Uh, another thing, this notion of time, time that isn't forward moving and progressive makes me think of is something Becky Chambers and I talked about in the first episode of Crafting with Ursula, which was an essay by Tuesday Smilly called Radical Imagination on the Left Hand of Darkness. And what Tuesday called radical imagination in regards to Le Guin is not Le Guin's radical imagination within her texts, or not only that, but primarily the way she's willing to go back into them and revision them as part of a process of revising herself over time, and most importantly, doing so publicly. Or as Tuesday puts it, Le Guin's public process of auto-critique is powerful, she takes ownership of her mistakes and does so on a platform in which her readers can trace and consider the evolution of her thinking. Le Guin self-critically engages with her creative practice and her past works, both in response to her critics and as her worldview shifts and expands. Through the public nature of this process, Le Guin invites her readers to interrogate their own opinions, cultivating a dynamic field of critical analysis. The, the carrier bag essay is part of her own public self-revision, but it's also a gesture that goes against time's arrow in the sense that she's always returning to her works and expanding them rather than abandoning them. Uh, and I, I wondered if this strikes you as true in your experience, but also if it brings up anything for you around your own writing and writing practice? 
That's such an art she invented and sustained from my point of view. And that nuance is nowhere apparent in contemporary <laughs> uh, discourse or uh, novelistic language or essay writing, that willingness to make the literal return into one's own imagination and intellect and re-stir the pot and recollect elements and rearrange them. That is so unique about her work. I, I very much agree with that. And a profound lesson for all of us to maybe think about some more. My own writing projects and the kind of I don't even know if teaching's the right word anymore, but facilitating or conduit lady stuff I try to do with others <laughs> is um, a lesson I learned from her to make the return and to um, consider the circle and to consider rearrangements of, of old ideas. Not that you were stupid in your past and now you're smart, but that rearrangements of meanings are life and stasis of meaning is deadly and harmful. Mm -hmm. um, and so those are some of the things that makes me think about. Well, in the spirit of associative storytelling, I, I'm going to pick up a different thread and sort of follow it obliquely from here. In, in your Misfit Manifesto excerpt, about the limitations of the hero's journey, you said, neither Native Americans nor African Americans can track their mythos through this journey since they were treated as the raw material through which the hero passed in order to forge a new world. I like how this situates the hero's journey in nonfiction as, as well, in the ways that we tell history or histories. And it also reminds me again of when I was corresponding with Rebecca Solnit about Le Guin. Um, and the two things that most leapt to her mind of interest were the carrier bag theory of fiction, but also Le Guin's relationship to place and the way she reimagined the West Coast, particularly California, both in her novel Always Coming Home and in her essay A Non-Euclidean View of California as a Cold Place to Be, an essay that Solnit has taught from and an essay that I, I also read a little bit from when I'm talking to Kim Stanley Robinson for the show. I don't think the carrier bag theory and our relationship to place are separate things. Le Guin's desire to find ways to tell stories that aren't driven by conflict and aren't organized around progress, but instead around return, they feel like a critique of our quote-unquote discovery narratives that organize the way we tell history and also the stories we tell of nation building. Um, in that light, Le Guin's interest in indigenous California histories is not an interest in them as histories, but as imagined futures of the place. Uh, she was also very much about reorienting the West Coast away from the East Coast, away from the center of publishing being New York, away from the coast that's facing Europe, and more foregrounding a conversation and engagement between the West Coast and Asia. Uh, but lastly, I'm also thinking of her story, Sir, which was also written during this 
period between 1977 and 1990 when she's puzzling out a new way to write the all-woman expedition to the South Pole that occurs after a failed male expedition where the women succeed at getting there but then decide not to declare it or to tell anyone. Uh, they come back and, and shortly after a male expedition gets there and, and takes credit and plants the flag. Um, in the spirit of all of this, of the way mono story histories are erasing so many other stories. I was hoping you'd talk about the Statue of Liberty and in, in your book, Thrust, um, because it feels like there's a mono story about the statue and that you're doing something else with the statue. Yes. Yes, I am. And it's directly, <laughs> directly related to uh, everything we've been talking about. I should confess first that when I think of history and when I enter history, even doing research or reading or thinking, it's like swimming for me, which means I feel like I'm in water, which means the usual moorings for what other people think history is fall away for me instantly. And for me, history is a collection of stories, some of which got airtime and others which did not. And when I enter it, I'm looking for threads that did not emerge as the primary mono story of whatever happened in the past. And because that's what existence has been. And it's a power structure that has, you know, raised one story over another of what anything means. So when I was researching and thinking about and, and imagining the Statue of Liberty as a sort of point in history, it became immediately clear to me that uh, I did not want to enter the storytelling mode of the Statue of Liberty as we've inherited an American meaning. And when I thought about that, the first place my imagination landed was, well, who were the workers? Not who was the famous dude who designed it, although he's in the story too. <laughs> um, not what was the groundbreaking ceremony like, but who were the workers? And there was no way to approach that story without foregrounding a choral or polyvocal approach to storytelling. Because whose story would be mo most important if workers had to collect and collaborate with their labor? It would be an error in storytelling to pluck one out and say, it's this guy. <laughs> so I ended up, you know, conjuring and rearranging elements of inherited history and research into a conjured, imagined story where a multiplicity of voice was given time and space and air and emotion and respect and honor and meaning. Um, and it was also within the research that I found the, the places in the story we've inherited about what the Statue of Liberty is that are bullshit. Um, one example is where the chains are on her body. I'll just say it like that. Where they started out, where they ended up in the 
process of building her or the fact that there was another statue planned that would have faced her in the harbor that um, was commissioned and had a groundbreaking ceremony and didn't end up happening because of money. Um, but the question became for me, how would the story of ourselves have changed if that other statue, which I won't say what it is, but if that other statue had been built as the fellow sentry staring at this woman with chains up where they're supposed to be in her hands, how would the story of our country have changed? How would we have understood ourselves differently? Um, and if you think about it, the sort of immigration experience as another example, it's absurd to think of plucking one voice out of that to tell that story. The stories crisscross and contradict each other and echo each other and chorus with each other and harmonize with each other and then don't. Um, and so anyone trying to capture that ought to be thinking about how to play with the actual page or the stage or the canvas or the whatever to represent the inability for a mono story to even emerge. Yeah, I mean, even in my superficial curiosity about the statue as I was preparing for today, I discovered that women's rights groups were protesting it. How can we have a woman representing liberty when we can't even vote? Yep. And there were African-American newspapers that were sort of mocking the aspirational aspect of the statue. But also, I think even if you think about the power of the monastery, I mean, I'd love to hear what you think about this. It seems like the monastery of the statue now, today, even erases the words at its pedestal. I mean, a socialist Jewish poet who wrote some pretty visionary words. Absolutely have not even come to symbolize the statue itself. No, the words on the Emma Lazarus poem at the on a plaque at the base <laughs> actually contradict most of popular culture and even history's idea about liberty in America and what the statue is supposed to represent. Yeah. It literally is an homage to misfits, to poor people, it's a critique of the hero's journey and the heroic um, impulse. It doesn't take any kind of special knowledge to read that poem to oneself alone in a room and understand that what she was trying to represent isn't what got, you know, sucked up into the <laughs> no. America's great. Right. <laughs> well, I want to introduce another voice again um, after Rebecca Solnit and after the anthropologists, the non-binary performance artist and filmmaker, Sin Y. Kin. They use drag science fiction and storytelling to look at systems of looking and desire and to vision new narratives. Uh, their films are really powerful and I'll include some links to some of them in, in in the email that goes out to supporters. Their influences in sci-fi are Le Guin and Delaney and Butler, the novels The Dispossessed and The Left Hand of Darkness in particular among Le Guin's books. But they have a film called A Dream of Wholeness in Parts, which I love given our conversation, A Dream of Wholeness in Parts. 
which engages with the carrier bag theory, um, even the title evoking it, obviously. Um, this film is influenced by Taoist philosophy and Peking and Cantonese opera, with uh, Sin queering those traditions. And they say, the narrative of a dream of wholeness in parts is nonlinear. As with some of my previous works, I wanted to create a carrier bag narrative, an immersive space where many things are held together for consideration without need to be questioned and resolved. And then elsewhere they say, the story of the hero of the weapon, the spear, which starts in one place and travels a straight line to end in another after a conflict, an enemy or an evil identified, is one we have heard over and over again. It is also the colonial, capitalist, and patriarchal meta-narrative that we are steeped in every day. But it is also in places you would not expect. It is in feminism, which tells the story of the evil essential man, who is the only enemy of the essential woman, who is her only oppressor, and who even, disguised as a woman, will try to infiltrate her spaces. It is a neoliberal leftism, which tells the story of the evil racist, who lynches and uses racist slurs and wears a white hood, that faraway enemy, the quote-unquote racist, who couldn't possibly be present in the subtleties of your everyday behavior within our white supremacist society, in your own white savior hero complex, or in your own actions or inactions as non-black people of color. The story of the hero is digestible, unchallenging, and final. The story of the carrier bag is complex, unresolved, and ongoing. One, one description of their work says, it, quote, presents heavily constructed fantasy narratives on the often unsettling experience of the physical within the social body. So in that spirit, I wanted to talk about your revision of the word thrust. Um, Le Guin says, it is the story that makes the difference. It is the story that hid my humanity from me. The story the mammoth hunters told about bashing, thrusting, raping, killing, about the hero. So, so tell us about your reclaiming or, or re-weirding of thrust and, and why. Oh, it's so exciting to think about all of these ideas. I love them so much. So thrust for, for anybody, if you say that word, whether you want to think it or not, a kind of male patriarchal, possibly crass gesture <laughs> comes to mind about thrusting, you know, like the spear or the cock or the, you know, a kind of pornographic even um, motion and and so that's like a first layer of meaning to that word but then i wanted to immediately play with the possibility of meaning multiplying and contradicting itself and shifting and so there's also the possible thrust meaning of the statue of liberty's arm 
It's a woman's arm. It's got a flame at the top. It's not exactly a patriarchal or phallic image. I don't know what the hell it is, but it's curious. And so that could be a thrust definition. But it could also mean what trees do. Uh, you know, they move from their root systems, which apparently talk to each other and feed each other and love on each other, uh, up into our walking around world and toward the sky in a in a thrust motion. That could be a different definition. I also think human sexuality is a thrusting motion and animal sexuality and plant sexuality is, is a thrust. I think the imagination of children could be described as an unstoppable thrust until we enculturate them and shut it down and colonize their beautiful wild imaginations. And I think the way the word thrust sounds a little bit like the word trust could be another, you know, play on language or meanings shifting around horizontally. So at the very level of a single word, and then by extension, stories, I'm trying to suggest that meanings could yet shift and change and transfer energy and, you know, what we've inherited or been told about who we are isn't the story we have to live with, even at the level of a single word or image or object or story. There are many other carrier bag writers and artists I could choose from as our last one, whether that were Sophia Almeria, the Qatari American writer and her book, Sad Sack, or Sarah Shin, one of the founders of Ignota Books, who was inspired to organize the New Sons Feminist Literary Festival because of Le Guin's essay and the line, with or before the tool that forces energy outward, we made the tool that brings energy home. Or the Finnish artist, Jenna Sutella, who engages with sound and words as well as with bacteria and slime molds and artificial neural networks, creating performances, audiovisual pieces, and sculptures, proposing sort of an interconnected future in which humans and non-humans coexist, she viewing the human body as a carrier bag of a lot of things that aren't us, whether that be bacteria or germs or viruses or, or babies. Um, but I wanted to end with a panel at the Venice Biennale inspired by the carrier bag essay. And that panel was called, What Could a Vessel Be? And Christina Sharp's keynote before the panel discussion has the same name. And one gesture she does is to name and gather other artists and their vessels, um, from the sculptor Ruth Asawa to the ceramicist Magdalene Adundo. She weaves them into the larger essay with her. I think similarly to the way we get Virginia Woolf and, and the anthropologist Fisher and Le Guin's essay, we get the sense of this connection to these other vessel makers. But she goes farther than Haraway's description of a frayed, porous carrier bag containing messy tales and contemplates the vessel not only as a recipient and hearth, but a vessel as a slave ship or a vessel as a prison, 
a vessel as a nation state, but also what if our vessel is ripped or wounded or torn and where she asks an inventory of impossible questions from this? What is a vessel when European officials leave over 500 migrants at risk of drowning on the Mediterranean Sea? Or what is a vessel when the forests in Siberia are on fire, when everything is on fire? I want to end with this because I think Sharp, I think Sharp brings this essay to a new place, brings Le Guin's essay to a new place, a place that the original essay, I think, invites others to do, to sort of think with, but also beyond Le Guin. And I think, I suspect she would be very moved by this essay. But before we read together from it, I guess, did you have any thoughts about, perhaps in a similar way, to thrust being reclaimed? That a vessel can also be a site of terror, or that perhaps the form now is also, the form that we need now is also a vessel that can no longer serve as what it is supposed to be if we're trying to reflect what we're seeing in reality. Um, I'm not sure I'm saying it well, but it makes me think of your Guernica essay, Woven, for instance, where you say, when my infant daughter died, spilling out with our shared waters, the story breached. Every story I have ever told has a kind of breach to it, I think. You could say that my writing isn't quite right, that all the beginnings have endings in them. And then later Aren't we all woven through with stories, a woven person, little misshapen stars made of straw? Does any of this bring up thoughts for you? I mean, I, I see the revolutionary nature of moving from the spirit to the recipient, but I also think it's really interesting what Christina is doing in saying that any form can be a place of birth or death, perhaps. Uh, such an important idea to consider deeply that rearrangements and repetitions and reformations and repurposings can take the idea of say the carrier bag or the vessel um with us into wherever we're you know headed next uh that the imagination itself is being is receiving a call to action to move things around and shift them. So the bag might not look like it looked in the past is a sort of dumb way to say it, but the notion that um, say a novel, if that was the example, or a human body has to change form, I think is worth considering. I mean, I'm waiting for my tail and my fins to kick in. I don't know if that's on the horizon, but um, I'm open to the idea. And I think this radical evolution, transformation, you know, adaptation is where to take the idea of the vessel or the carrier next and to let the, the frightening questions surface, to let the contradictions surface, to let the killing come back into the story so it might disperse and shift and change too. And so that's, it's not without tension. It's not without difficulty. Mm-hmm. Well, I thought we could, as part of this, do a call and response from Christina's keynote with her blessing. In, in the spirit of Le Guin and Sharp's gestures 
toward other voices. But first I'll just say we're, we are reading stuff that I lifted from the original essay, not continuous sections as they appear and, and removing some references to specific works that will make better sense when you're reading the whole of Christina's piece. In other words, this call and response Lydia and I are going to do is meant to evoke the whole, but is more like a discontinuous preview of it in fragments that I've gathered. Um, and I'll include the video of Christina Sharp reading this speech, which I urge you to listen to and watch in its wholeness from beginning to end when I send out the resources to listeners. And you can also find a version of this um, in the catalog of the Biennale as well. So when you're ready, Lydia. Okay. Thank you, Christina. What is a vessel in times of escalating catastrophe? Is a house a vessel? Is a nation? Is a museum a vessel? Is a photograph a vessel? What is or should or could a vessel be in times of refusal and resistance? Is a vessel a reimagining? Is a narrative a vessel? Is a poem? What is or could or would a vessel be at the end of one world and the beginning of another one? Is capital a vessel? Is the enclosure a vessel? Is the prison a vessel? Is a burning police car a vessel? What is a vessel when a billion sea creatures, mussels, clams, starfish, and snails bake in their own shells? Is a vessel a shell then? Is a vessel an ocean then? Does a vessel smell like decay? If you boil in your own skin, can a vessel hold you? Is a whale a vessel? Is a jellyfish a vessel? Is a score a vessel? What is a vessel when ayas jump from their nests to escape the extreme heat? Is a nest a vessel? Is an egg? What is a vessel when 10 people, mostly older, all black, are hunted down and shot to death in a grocery store? What is a vessel when 21 people, 19 fourth graders and their two teachers, mostly Latinx, are shot to death in their classroom? Is a grocery store a vessel? Is a school a vessel? Is a scream a vessel? Are you ulations a vessel? Is a memorial a vessel? Is a vessel vulnerable? Is a vessel febrile? Is a vessel a shroud? Is it a coffin? What is the vessel for holding this? What is the vessel for mourning this? Pregnancy registers, abortions restricted and outlawed, unavailable many places for any reason. Is a woman a vessel? Is a birthing person a vessel? What is a vessel in a time of both drought and drowning? What is a vessel when the Sahara Desert is expanding to the Sahel? What is a vessel when European officials leave over 500 migrants at risk of drowning on the Mediterranean Sea? Is a vessel a plastic jug once filled with drinkable water now empty? Is a vessel an undrinkable, unpassable ocean? What is a vessel when there are over 1,862 drilling platforms in the Gulf of Mexico 
and the ocean is on fire after a pipeline rupture? Is a vessel a rig, or is it a platform? Is the ocean a rig, or a platform? What is a vessel when the forests in Siberia are on fire, when everything is on fire? Is a vessel a plant? Is it a forest? There are people who are marked as only vessels, flesh, plastic, fungible, devalued. There are people who are marked as perfectible and carriers of knowledge, people marked as expendable and carriers of disease. There are vessels marked to work, people marked to die. There is the imagination as vessel. Is a vessel an inventory? Is a vessel a chorus, a murmuration, a gathering? What might a vessel be? What could a vessel be at the end of the world? (laughs) So good. Thank you, Lydia. I'm thrilled to be included. I think this idea you had is just spectacular. You must think about this all the time. At the heart of it is a chorus of people, and she would love that. Oh, I think she would too. I mean, it would. I think she would love to hear it. And I do think, even though I think Christina's sort of exploding the essay in some ways, I think she's exploding it in the spirit of what Le Guin exploded in the first place, if that makes sense. I agree. Yeah, that I think she would actually love this keynote speech. That's another like deep and profound difference. Um, in Ursula's work, there's a push to hold questions open and agitate yeah, rather than conclude and contain. And I wish more people talked about that, actually, um, what a big deal that is, because it's against all male criticism in the history of scholarship. Yeah. Thank you, Lydia, for... Um, spending this time with me today to talk. Are you kidding? It's a guess. (laughs) I just have fun every time I talk to you. I love the way your mind works and I really love this project so much. We've been talking today to Lydia Yuknovich, the author most currently of Thrust. Stay tuned next month for the next episode of Crafting with Ursula. Today's program was recorded at the volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength, makeshift home office of me, David Naiman. More of Lydia Yuknovich's work can be found at lydiayuknovich.net. If you enjoyed today's conversation, consider transforming yourself from a listener to a listener supporter. Learn about the potential gifts and rewards of doing so at patreon.com slash between the covers. These include everything from rare collectibles from Ursula K. Le Guin to bonus audio beyond the main conversations with everyone from Daniel Jose Older to N.K. Jemison, to receiving a bundle of books handpicked by me or becoming an early reader for Tin House, receiving 12 books over the course of a year, months before they're available to the general public. Again, you can find out more at patreon.com slash between the covers. Or if you prefer a one-time donation, you can do so by PayPal at tinhouse.com slash support. 
I'd like to thank Arwen Curry for the audio of Ursula at the beginning from the documentary Worlds of Ursula K. Le Guin. William Anthony for the photograph of Ursula used in the banner. Tin House's Alice Evelyn Yang for the graphic design. Becky Kramer and Jay Michelle for publicity. Theo Downs Le Guin for being a bottomless well of ideas, support, and insight. Finally, the music you hear, called River Song, and the music in the introduction, Heron Song, come from the collaborative album by Todd Barton and Ursula Le Guin called Music and Poetry of the Kesh. Thanks to Todd Barton for granting permission for its use. See you next month for another episode of Crafting with Ursula. Ursula.